In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skilled in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. drank. They were educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishai, and Azariah, of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favour and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see you see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are, who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food, be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables as for those, these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishai and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Good evening. Um, I I wonder, is the music going to play when I run out of time as well? I don't know. If you hear it, please uh, let me know. Uh, Well, I wonder if you've been away from home much for a long period of time. 
I know most here have been away for at least a week, because many of you have been on Beach Machine. Um, but I wonder if you've been away a bit longer than that. I wonder if you know what it is to experience homesickness. Uh, maybe some of you are about to go away to university, your first time kind of away from home for, for a long time. Maybe some of you have been away, uh, and you know what it's like to, to have that kind of yearning for home, that desire to, to want to be back where you feel at rest or you feel at ease. Um, and maybe if you've experienced that, you will know what it's like when you feel a bit homesick um, to hear a piece of music, maybe, that reminds you of home. Or to maybe taste some food that kind of takes your mind rushing back to, uh, to where you're brought up. Or maybe it's a smell. I remember we moved from North Wales down to South Wales when I was four. Um, but there was a smell that, even if I smell it today, will take me back to North Wales. Not literally, of course. That would be an amazing thing, wouldn't it? But um, to, if I smell this smell, it will transport me back. And this, the thing is, it's not a romantic smell. This is what it is. It's creosote. Let me know what creosote is. Creosote is chemicals you paint on fences, okay, uh, to make it last longer. But when I smell that, it takes me back. You know, maybe you know what it's like to, to feel homesickness. Well, the theme of being away from home um, is a big one in the Bible. Uh, the theme of exile is one that we can trace from almost from the first page. Because uh, in the Bible, we see that the Bible starts in Genesis, as most of you will know. But there, we were created to be in the garden with God. We were created to be with God, to be in relationship with him. That is where humanity is at home. That's it. That is where we were created to be. That's what we, um, where we most flourish, being at home with God in the garden there. But the problem is, the Bible doesn't stop, does it, at Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 comes, and after the fall, they were cast out of Eden, and now the problem is all of humanity is born east of Eden. We're outside of our home, and so there's a longing, a yearning in every human being for home. So in your friends, with your friends and family who don't know Jesus, in their hearts there's a yearning, there's a longing for home, even if they don't know what that is. But as well, that um, yearning, this longing, is, is something which is more keenly felt by Christians. Because we're told in the Bible that we are in exile. We're not home yet. Uh, we are away from our home. Our home is in glory. Our home is in the new creation. And that's one day where we'll be. But until we're there, we're going to be yearning for it. We're going to be longing for it. And so we are in exile. And when we come to the book of Daniel, that helps us to, to kind of grasp how important it is for us to see what's going on here. Because in the book of Daniel, Daniel has, uh, is in exile. That is, he was torn away from his home. The, the Babylonians had come in and Kim, King Nebuchadnezzar was there. And uh, they took all these, uh, the young men and the leaders of their time and took them away from all that they knew into a new place. Remember at this time, uh, Daniel was about 13, 14, 15, when he was ripped away from his family. And he was taken away from a place that was comfortable and home, uh, from a place that was surrounded by reminders of the God that he was uh, worshipping, from all the holidays that they had, from every one day a week where they set it aside to, to, to rest, uh, from the feasts, and, and everything was, well, everything was there to remind him of God. And he was put in a place there was full of, well, all, all, uh, loads of gods. From a place where there was one temple to where there was over a thousand. And this was surrounding Daniel. He was in a new place. He was in exile. He was far from home. And not only is he far from home and everything he's used to is taken away from him, but Daniel was about to be thrown into something terrifying. So you need to realise what's going on in these first few verses. Um, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just happy with going into Israel and taking um, people away. No, he wanted to do more than that. He wanted to totally obliterate Israel and its culture. 
So what does he do? How does he go about that? Well, we see in those first uh, verses from um, verse 3 down to verse 6, we see there that the, the, the elite of Israel were taken away. The royal family, um, the equivalent today would be like the CEO, CEOs, the, uh, the chief executives and the politicians, they're all taken away. And the promising youngsters, they were taken away as well, uh, future leaders. And what was going to happen was they would be taken to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar wanted to destroy any background that they had in trusting in God. He wanted to get rid of anything to do with Israel and their culture and he wanted to Babylonianize them. I don't know if that's a word, but that's what he was trying to do. He wanted to make them totally um, like Babylon. Babylonian in their thinking. So he was put for three years to study, Daniel was put with his friends to study um, pagan teaching and philosophy, teaching all about their gods and their wisdom and their literature. And really he wanted to brainwash them. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to brainwash these young men to get rid of any trace of God in them. And yet, after 70 years in Babylon, Daniel stood strong. At the end of the chapter... Um, that verse there that we'll look at as we close. There we're told that Daniel, 70 years later, that's what that is talking about. He was there until then. And he stood firm. So Daniel was in exile. And the question I'd like us to ask tonight, well, well how does he, he, he excels in exile. Do you like he excels in exile. How can we excel in our exile before we go home uh, to glory? How can we stand firm now? Well, I want us to see five things that we can be doing uh, to help us to stand firm. And uh, the first of that is we need to be trusting. Trusting. Now, this just comes in the first couple of verses. Uh, the first verse is really matter-of-fact. Look with me at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It's very matter-of-fact, isn't it? Very black and white. But read between the lines. No, we don't always do that with the Bible, do we? But listen to what I'm saying here. Think of what was going on. Families torn apart. Uh, teenagers like Daniel and his friends ripped from their family. Uh, they would, might never see them again. You know, the tears, the heartache, uh, the questions that would be flying around in people's heads. We're God's people and we've been taken over. Hang on, didn't our God defeat Egypt? What's wrong now? What's happened to him now? Where is God? What is he doing? You know, the parents of these children... Why have they taken him? God, why aren't you doing anything? What's going on here? See, there would have been heartache behind verse 1. But verse 2 helps us to see what was going on in Daniel's mind. See, this wasn't powerful Nebuchadnezzar that had got, taken God by surprise. This wasn't um, God being caught off guard. You know, his back was turned and suddenly Nebuchadnezzar's pounced in and taken some of his people. No, this was all in God's hands. Look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. You see, the Lord was in control of this. Now, why did God let that happen? Well, you see, the warning signs were there. If you read Leviticus 26, it talks about the blessings of the curse, uh, blessings and curse of the covenant. If they listened to God and trusted him, uh, they'd be prosperous in the land and things would go well. But if they disobeyed God... God said, well, I'm just going to let you have what you choose. If you don't want me, don't have me. I will let the nations come in and you'll be scattered among the nations. The warnings were there. And so this was God being faithful to his promise and saying, you haven't listened to me, uh, Judah. You haven't listened to me, my people. And they were taken away. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come in and to take them away. You see, Daniel knew his Bible. He knew this whole situation 
was in God's hands. So in his time in exile, he trusted that God was in control. Does that mean that 14-year-old Daniel didn't cry himself to sleep some nights? Sure he didn't. I'm sure he did. Does that mean that he didn't ask why and long to be home? Long to taste his mother's cooking again? Long to be back with his friends and his family where he grew up? Of course he found it hard. But he knew undergirding all of that was this truth. God's still in control. He's got this. I wonder if you know what that's like to ask those kind of questions like Daniel would have. God, where are you? God, what are you doing? When we step back and look at our society, our country, I wonder if we think that the rampant atheism and kind of the, the secularism that's around, or maybe just the, the apathy that there is to spiritual things so often. And we just think, can we do anything? God, what are you doing? You know, maybe we see numbers dwindling in our church or in our youth group. So we think, God, what are you doing? Maybe there's a situation in your life that is breaking your heart, tearing you apart, keeping you awake at night. And you're just wondering, God, what are you doing? And there's hope here, isn't there? You see, God is in control. Huge comfort, undergirding everything. There's a God who knows what he's doing. And why did God allow this to happen to his people? Why did God allow Nebuchadnezzar to come in? Well, we see the reason that God allows this exile to happen is because ultimately he wants to win them back. Ultimately, he wants to humble them so that they turn and see how great he is. See, in your situation, God knows what he's doing, and he's doing it for your good. I'm going to talk about sheep now, not just because I'm Welsh, uh, but because this will help us to make the point. But I don't know if you've seen a sheep dip in action. Um, I haven't, surprisingly. Uh, But what happens is sheep are thrown into into this trough, and it's filled with antiseptic, and they are totally submerged in this antiseptic. And for the sheep, obviously, put yourself in their hooves for a few moments, and you will see that's terrifying. You know, to be submerged in this liquid, sheep dogs barking at you to keep you in, it's terrifying, isn't it? But why are the sheep put through the sheep dip? Because the farmer knows that if it wasn't for that, they would be killed by parasites and diseases. If it wasn't for that, uh, there would be no hope for the future. It's for their good. See, sometimes we go through situations that we just don't understand, and we're kicking, and we're screaming, and we don't get it. And we need to look up and see there's a good shepherd. A good shepherd who knows and who's in control and who's working out his purposes. See, maybe we look at our situation, we, we look at the, the rampant atheism or secularism and think, what is going on? And maybe that we think the enemy's got the upper hand, doesn't he? But here, do you see that um, Nebuchadnezzar could only do what God allowed him? Does it remind us of Pilgrim's Progress? Remember the part there where he is going up to Palace Beautiful and he's passing the porter's lodge and Christian was entering this narrow passage and up ahead he saw two lions and he was terrified. And John Bunyan says this, the lions were chained but he saw not the chains. You see, he saw these roaring lions and he thought, yes, I think they're going to devour me. But the truth was that there was chains. See, the devil is on a leash. He can only go so far. And we are on the side of the God who's in control. When we're in exile, how do we excel? How do we keep strong? We need to look up and remember and trust that God is in control. But sometimes in the darkness, when we're struggling and asking the wise, we can wonder, well, maybe God isn't that good. We can start to doubt his goodness, start to doubt his character. But there's something in verse 2 that I wanted to point out, and this isn't me, this is Dale Roth Davis really helpfully points this out. He says this, look at what happens at the end of verse 2. Some of the vessels of the house of God were taken away by Nebuchadnezzar and thrown um, into his treasury. 
some of the artifacts from the, temp- from the tabernacle, from the, uh, from the temple. And you think, well, how humiliating for God. For the God who um, was worshipped in Israel and uh, in Judah, his, uh, some of these vessels taken away and thrown just with all of the collections of all of the other false gods. Can you imagine how that would have looked to the Babylonians looking on? What a rubbish God. What a failure of a God they've got. What's going on here? Well, we realise that God was willing to be humiliated. God was willing to be weak and to become defiled and to seem like he'd lost. Why did God go through that? Because he wanted to win his people back. So we've got the same God today, haven't we? A God who willingly humiliated himself. A God who willingly, in the person of Jesus, became defiled so that we can be saved. Now, when we're struggling and asking those questions, we look up to that God. That's the God we worship. That's the God we're trusting in. And the quote from Spurgeon is so helpful here. He says, God's too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. That's the God we're trusting in. So that's the first point. Well, how do we live in exile? We are, to, first of all, we need to be trusting. Now, just to give you a bit of a warning, I should have said this at the start. You need to think of a tadpole as we're thinking through this talk tonight, okay? The first two points are big, big head, small tail. So don't worry, we're not going to be here that much longer. Um, the first two points will take most of our time. But we need to be trusting. How do we stand firm as exiles? Trusting. The second thing is we need to be discerning. Discerning. Now, Daniel is far from home. All the support and the comfort and everything he's ever known have just been ripped away from him. He's vulnerable, he's exposed, and he's about to be thrown into Nebuchadnezzar's brainwashing academy. I know that's probably not what it was called. Probably, probably wasn't on the prospectus. But that's effectively what it was. This brainwashing academy, and he was about to be thrown in at the deep end. And the sole aim, as I said earlier, was to Babylonianize them. Okay, Babylonianize them. And there's a three-pronged attack to how Nebuchadnezzar would go about doing it. The first thing we see in verse 4, end of verse 4, he was going to teach them um, in the literature and language of Babylon. So totally pagan, all this teaching would have been, lots of areas, maths, medicine, astronomy, uh, dreams, and again, totally pagan thinking. And it was going to take three years of him studying that day after day after day. The second thing they do in verse 5 is he's going to be given the food that the king eats. So you can eat uh, the king's food. That is enjoying Michelin-starred food every day. Why, why, did he, why did they want to do that for these people who they brought from Israel? Well, they wanted to show them the luxury and the comfort that came if you went in the ways of Babylon. If you follow our ways, this is what you can taste. This is the thing you can enjoy. And then the third thing they do in verse um, uh, 6 uh, and 7 is they change their names. You know, think about their names. Daniel means God is my um, judge. Imagine the conversation that would come. What's your name? Daniel. Oh, I haven't heard that name before. What does that mean? Well, it means that my God is the judge of the world. And you can imagine the conversation that would come from that. But no, here his name is changed to Belteshazzar, meaning uh, blessed by Bel, blessed by even Marduk. We're not sure what it means exactly, but it's to do with another God. And the same is true for all the other names. Just their identity trying to be taken away from them. So how does Daniel respond? Here he is um, being bombarded by all this stuff that's been thrown at him. What does he do? Well, it's not as straightforward as we might think. Because what does Daniel do with the studies? Does he say, no, I'm not studying that pagan literature? Well, he doesn't. Actually, we see by the end of the chapter, he excels in it. He does really well. 
he, he gets to grips with it, he studies it, and he, he probably got a first in the dreams module. He was doing really well there. And uh, this was pagan stuff he was researching and looking at. He didn't just reject it, but he studied that. The next thing, what did he do about the names? Well, he didn't reject the names either. These names are pagan names that they attached to them. He didn't reject them, but neither did he take them on. As I said, verse 21 is 70 years later, and he's still calling himself Daniel. Yeah, so he acknowledged that's what they might call me, but I know that God is my judge. He didn't let that kind of change his identity. But when it came to the food, do you see what he did? Verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. He resolved at that point that he wasn't going to eat the food of the king, but instead he wanted to eat the vegetables. Now, if you're a vegetarian thinking, yes, go on, preach it. Uh, It's not about being a vegetarian, sorry. You might have other issues with that, and you can try and work them out with people later. But uh, there's some helpful principles here for us to, um, to, to ask, well, how can we live in exile? How do we stand strong? How do we respond to the world around us? And Daniel's got a lot to say to us. Because as Christians, we're good at extremes, aren't we? Now, some people would, would um, say, see, Daniel uh, didn't defile himself, so how do we respond to the world around us? We don't touch any of it. We stay out. Other people would say, see, he studied pagan, pagan literature. He didn't reject the name, so we jump in. So what is it? Which do we do? Uh, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? It's not straightforward. Um, Art Azergia, who's got a book called Connected Christianity, has a really two helpful phrases that um, kind of show these out a bit uh, very helpfully for us. He says this, sometimes Christians we can be guilty of cultural anorexia. That is, we stay out, we don't touch any of it, and church just becomes a Christian ghetto. It just becomes like a a monastery or a nunnery. Uh, Christians talk to Christians, and we just lose our missional aspect. I wonder, have you fallen into that trap? When you look around at your close friends, you haven't really got any unbelieving friends. You haven't really got friends who aren't Christians that you're praying for and really trying to spend time and love and show the love of Christ to and share the gospel with. You've just ended up becoming spending time with Christians all the time. It's in a Christian ghetto. You know, it's easier, isn't it, to spend time with Christians? It's more comfortable, but it's dangerous. Because that's not biblical. Cultural anorexia is one extreme we can fall into. The other is cultural gluttony. Whereas we just take everything on board and don't even think about how the culture is affecting us. Both cultural anorexia and cultural gluttony are dangerous. But here we see Daniel in his wisdom is discerning. You see, he takes some stuff on, but he leaves others. How do we know? Let me ask you this question this evening. Are you a thermostat or a thermometer? Are you a thermostat or a thermometer? What's the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer? Let me tell you if you don't know. A thermometer is controlled by the conditions around it. Yeah? A thermometer tells you what's going on. It's controlled by what's happening around it. A thermostat, on the other hand, affects the atmosphere. Doesn't it? It controls the atmosphere. It affects what's going on. Now, which are you? Are you just being influenced by everything that's going on? Are you just being blown around? Or are you actually, like a thermostat, making a difference where you are because as christians we're called to be in the world but not of it we're called to be distinct we're called to do what jesus prays for us in john 17 he says as he's praying for his disciples and for us sanctify them in the truth um, as you send me in the world so i send them so we're to go into the world but we're to be different we're to be resolved like daniel to say no to certain things but we're to be involved in other things and being wise and discerning as we do it see jesus didn't just stay out did he thankfully he came in he got involved as we're um, asking that question, I wonder 
where you are tonight on that. Maybe you have, maybe you're just, you're just falling into culture of gluttony. You're just taking everything on board and it is changing your thinking. It's affecting how you think, affecting how you view people, affecting how you're viewing God. And you know that God is putting your finger on something right now and, he's, and you need to stop. You need to say no. And you need to, um, as Daniel did, resolve to say no. Maybe others need the encouragement to get out, to mix and, and spend time with unbelievers. You know, as we read through this passage, sometimes people ask, well, why the food? Why did he draw the line there? He studied a lot. He kind of accepted the name, but didn't really take it to heart. But he st- draw the line at the food. Why? And just to save you reading lots, of, reading lots of pages like I have in preparation for this, basically, the commentator to say, we're not too sure. We don't know. You know, it could be um, the idolatry thing. It could be because the king was having it. He didn't want to be dependent on the king. It could be, we just don't know. It could be because it's been offered to other idols. Save you some time, I'll just say we, we don't know. But think of the result of it. Daniel, every time he had a meal, was reminded of who he was and where he was from and who his God was. Brilliant. It's genius. Every time he had a meal, he would say, I'm eating this vegetable, these vegetables because I serve the living God, because I serve the true God. And so he had built into his day this regular reminder of the truth of his identity. Do you have something like that? Have you got built into your life reminders of who you are in Christ? Do you have a time set aside to remind yourself of him personally on your own with God? With your Bible open saying, Jesus, speak to me, show me you. Show me who I am and show me who you are. Do you have time set regularly to go to church, uh, to be there and to make sure that you are feeding on the word, but feeding and encouraging other Christians to reminding each other of our true home? Have you got things set in place? Daniel did and it helped him to stand strong. See, Daniel in his exile was discerning. It's interesting to note, isn't it, as well, that this was only a small thing. It was only food. But actually the whole chapter hinges on him saying no to the king's food. It's just a little area. There's no furnace like we're going to hear about. This is no um, lion's den. Now, this, is, this is a small thing. And yet he was faithful in the small thing. When nobody was looking, when it wasn't a major thing, when it was quite private, he, may, he, he was faithful there. Are you faithful when no one else is looking? Are you faithful in the private areas? Are you faithful in the times where, where there's nobody else thinking, nobody else sees what you're doing? See, as Paul Tripp points out, we make 10,000 tiny decisions that, uh, that decide the trajectory of our life. Those little decisions are what counts. Are you honouring God in those little times, in those private spaces? To stand firm, uh, to stand firm in our time of exile, we need to be trusting, we need to be discerning. The last uh, three are very brief. See what Daniel does next is uh, we see that he's living. Um, Daniel, if you read through the book, you'll see that he's aware of Jeremiah, the, um, the prophet. Jeremiah is writing, so Jeremiah was a prophet at the same time as Daniel was in exile. So he, that's what he had to read. He would have read and heard Jeremiah preaching. And in Jeremiah 29, we're told there um, how the, um, the exile should live in exile. And he says this, he said, How should you live in exile? Well, you're going to be there for 70 years, you're told. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Multiply there. Don't decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. 
See, Jeremiah is telling um, the exiles, look, pray for the people around you. Love them. Care for them. Seek their welfare. See what's best for them. Pray for them. And as it benefits, you will benefit too. And just Daniel, his attitude to dealing with getting vegetables to his table, we see that he is dealing with those around him with gentleness and respect that we see um, 1 Peter uh, 3 calling us to do. You see, he loves them. He cares about them. John Lennox point this, points this out really helpfully in his commentary. When he asks for vegetables, you see, he doesn't kind of slam his hand on the table and say, I demand this, this is my right. But he quietly goes to the chief of the eunuchs and says, I want this. And the chief of the eunuchs were told in, in verse 8, he's, he's, um, he sees Daniel with, with, with favour. You know, he says, look, that, um, in verse 9, God gave Daniel favour and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Was that because of the way he spoke to him? Was that because of the, the how gentle he was towards him and sh- showed him respect? He got a no from the chief of the eunuchs, but still, he saw favour in him and he warned him about the king. So Daniel didn't again just kick up a stink and have a, have a, have a hissy fit or a poody, we call it in Wales. He didn't do that, but he went and spoke to uh, somebody else and just said, look, I, I really would like this. The way he speaks, you read that and you see there's a, there's a kindness, there's a love, there's a gentleness. Is that how we respond to those around us in our time of exile? Are we gent- speaking with gentleness and respect? We know the truth. We know Jesus Christ. And so often, uh, as Christians, we can come across as arrogant. We can look down on people because we think we know we've got the truth. But we need to be humbled by the gospel, don't we? We need to realise that those around us need to hear it. And let's pray that we love them like Daniel would have. That we pray that we would show the love of Christ. Speak the words of Christ to them. Not just have projects of people who pray and become Christians, but truly love, share our lives, sacrifice for them. See, to stand firm in exile, we need to be loving. Isn't that what Jesus did? He was gentle. He had compassion. He wasn't a pushover. He stood firm. But he looked. He loved, didn't he? Not looked, he didn't look down. He looked on the crowds and, and, and had compassion on them. So trusting, discerning, loving. And the, the fourth thing is, is looking. Looking to the big picture. And this just comes in the last verse, really. Uh, but before that, we see that God honoured these men. They stood firm and God honoured them. They stood before the king and um, we told him verse 20, they were ten times better than anybody else. I don't know how they quantified that, but they were better than anybody else in the kingdom. Think of that. And the, the king honoured them. He was, in their, he was in the king's palace then. They had high-up roles in the kingdom. These four exiles from Judah who had... Um, they were nobodies when they came. In three years, God had honoured them for their stance for him and they had favour with the superpower, the most powerful man in the world at that time. Amazing to think, isn't it? But Daniel, you see, wasn't uh, kind of starstruck by the power of the throne of Nebuchadnezzar. He had his eyes on another throne. Look what happens in verse 21. Daniel was there, we're told, until the first year of King Cyrus. Quite a throwaway verse. You know, so what? But who was King Cyrus? King Cyrus was the king of Persia. Um, by the time King Cyrus had come, Nebuchadnezzar had well gone. And what had happened to Babylon? Well, it fell. It fell to the Persians. The Persians came in and took over. Well, how does that help us? You know, here's Daniel. He's 80 plus years in verse 21. How does that help us? How do you see? It's as if God is saying, Babylon came and went. Persia will come and go. But I remain on the throne. 
I remain the one who's in control of all things. See, rulers and kings and thoughts and ideas, they come and go. But there's one who is the king of kings who will remain there forever. See, as we're in exile, we're going to face pressures and, and powers and rulers and ideas. And we're going to think that uh, they're going to be powerful forever. We're going to think that these ideas are going to crush us, crush the church. But let's lift our eyes to the throne of heaven. The one who has seen powers and superpowers come and go. The one who rules over all. See, there's going to be times when we're wondering what God is up to. There's going to be times where it looks like, you know, it's more powerful than us. But we need to realise that God's working out his purposes. For God, a, a thousand years is just like a day. Right, in over Easter, we went on holiday and with Thomas was there, my three-year-old. And we were 10,000 feet in the air, travelling at 500 miles an hour in an aeroplane. Just to, just to emphasise that, in an aeroplane. Uh, and he looked out the window and he said, why are we going so slow? See, from his perspective, it looked like we weren't really moving. We were travelling at 500 miles an hour. But you see, from our perspective, we can think things are going slow. In our 80, 90, 100 years that we've got, it might seem like things are going slow. But from God's perspective... He sees the whole picture. We can trust him. We need to look, be looking to the greater throne. You see, this is how we stand firm. You know, some of the things, touching on, scratching the surface really, trusting, discerning, loving, looking. And the last thing is this. We need to remember. Remembering the true exile. Because as we live as exiles, as we need to remember the greatest exile of all, don't we? Who was it that left his home and humbled himself to come to this world? Who was it that left everything that was familiar to him and took on flesh, who was bombarded by the temptation and the pressures of this world, but he never failed. He stood strong. He was greater than Daniel. That's Jesus, isn't it? He lived as an exile on earth. And he went to the cross, and he on the cross was cast out, wasn't he? Cast out from the presence of the Father. He was cast out of home, as it were. Jesus on the cross became the ultimate exile. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus get thrown out of the presence of the Father? He did it because that's what we deserve for our rebellion, for how we fail to live like this. Jesus did that for us. He did that so we could be forgiven. Jesus lived this perfectly. He trusted when uh, he trusted Father when he didn't understand what the cross would mean, when he said, if there's any other way, and then he said, not my will, I trust you. He engaged, didn't he, with those around him wisely while remaining pure. He loved the world so deeply that he was willing to die in his place. And he looked to the, to the future for the joy that was set before him. See, when we remember the great exile, Jesus Christ, it gives us an assurance, doesn't it? Why did he do all that? Why did Jesus do all that he did it for you? As we try to stand firm in our exile, we look to Jesus who did that. He, he did that for me, even with all my failure, even with all my failings and faults gives us confidence because the one who stood firm is with you. As we seek to live in our exile, we've got one who has done it and is saying, you're not alone. I'm with you. When you go back to your situation, maybe you feel all alone in your family, in your course, in your, um, in your village, in your town. You feel all alone. Jesus says, no, I'm with you. And I've been here before. Doesn't it win our hearts? What a saviour. Let's pray that we can serve him and stand firm in our exile looking to the great Jesus Christ.